the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. Before we kick off today's podcast, I'm going to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and what I hope will be a less turbulent New Year. This is going to be the final podcast before the festive season properly kicks in and we're going to be taking a well-earned break on the podcast for a few weeks. But we will be back in 2021, so fear not. Your regular audio fix of the stories shaping shipping and my regular maritime waffle will restart, energised and ready for a new year recovery. In the meantime, I'm not leaving you empty-handed. The Lloyd's List annual outlook is out and has more than enough content to get you through the festive break and set you up with the inside track on the market's tipping points for the next 12 months. And don't forget, you can now read your way through the entire Lloyd's List Top 100, now available in a handy online magazine edition, so you can read the whole thing in one go. Perfect distraction to help you avoid tedious relatives and family arguments this Christmas. But before you head to LloydsList.com to check that out, I have one final slice of shipping analysis for you, and it's a good one this week. Evercore's Jonathan Chappelle is regarded as the Dean of Shipping Analysts, given his experience dating back nearly 20 years, but this is actually his first outing on the Lloyd's List podcast. We're talking tankers this week, obviously. After a year of extreme volatility, tanker markets are going to begin 2021 with little certainty of how... Demand for seaborne oil and refined products is going to look in a post-pandemic world. Like most analysts, he's not overly optimistic about the first half of next year, which I think he's going to be pretty grim. But he does see some light at the end of the tunnel towards the end of the year. And with a good win behind us, 2022 could be okay. It was only 14 months ago where tankers were vastly in favor. You know, investors coming out of the woodwork. Uh, it was right on the, the eve of IMO 2020, this this big game-changing, um, you know, capacity-tightening event that, that people have been talking about for four years. And you had the sanctions on Costco and the, um, the nebulous way to treat those that caused this spike. And uh, from September of 2019 until early December of 2019, I probably had more calls on shipping than at any time since 2008. So it was exciting. And, um, you know, and, and then the, the sanctions get removed and, and the market starts to, to come off a little bit. But it doesn't matter because you still have IMO 2020 there for this, this big uh, recovery. And then, of course, we go to the pandemic, which at first is scary because, you know, what happens to demand. But then we have this floating storage wave. Um, you know, we were doing calls with with uh, with macro people saying that the tanks are going to run out and you're going to need 10 percent or more of the fleet to store oil, um, which once again generated a lot of investor interest and obviously a lot of cash for the companies who had tankers on the spot market at that time. Um, but then finally, I mean, and I say this somewhat self-deprecating, but 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 honest, finally, we figured out I figured out how these things, how these stocks trade. Um, and it was a little different from 2003 to 2008 versus from 2009 to today. Mm -hmm. um, but you really sell these stocks when things are at their best. And I remember vividly in 2015, if you remember, there was that, that great little cycle in tankers mid-2014 to mid-2016. And the stocks peaked just as earnings were starting to accelerate, just as dividends were, were doubling and tripling, just as asset values were going. And it was a lesson that I took forward into 2020 that, um, you know, you sell these incredibly cyclical volatile names when things are at their best and you buy them when things are at their worst. And in late April, 
when VLCC rates were over 200,000 a day and LR2s were 150,000 a day and MRs were almost triple digits and everybody was talking about how great it is and how it's different this time, we came out and said it's not different this time. And it was a very simple call of just look at what's happened to demand in this short period of time. And even if you think there's going to be a massive recovery in 2021, which is certainly the base case now, but but not so much in 20 uh, in April, um, and look at aggregate global oil demand from 2019 to 2021, we're going to lose 8 million barrels plus this year. And mm. knock on wood, we're going to gain 6 million back next year. But that's still 2 million deterioration over a, over a two-year period. And is the fleet going to shrink by 2%? No, it's not. Of course, we can talk about low order books and the hopes for scrapping. Everyone's great hope of scrapping, which never plays out as anyone expects it to. And um, and it was just very simple. You know, the, the utilization of the fleet will be lower um, for the next 12 to 18 months once you start to have this anomaly, this floating storage uh, tailwind removed. And it was probably the best call I've made since 2004. Um, you know, this winter has been horrible. I don't see it really changing uh, over the, the coming six to nine months. I think inventories need to get back to uh, five-year averages, both the products and crude. I think you need um, you know OPEC to start opening the taps again, which they're doing very modestly in January, but not nearly enough to move the needle. Um, and you do need some, some capacity response as well. So although I am very encouraged by the vaccine, I think that that is a second half 21, most likely 22 event for demand. Um, because I don't think that day one of a vaccine rollout, you're going to you go back to traveling the way you did in 2017. Um, and I'm also encouraged by the low order book. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a low order book never saved a market. You need to demand to recover. So that'll set a nice little base. It provide a nice little floor, especially if scrapping picks up again. Um, but we need to see oil demand return to the 100 million barrel mark at some point before you can kind of recalibrate the supply demand of the fleet and think about a, a more sustainable upturn. You you described there, uh, you know, a fairly logical assessment of, of an industry that, uh, you know, uh, I guess skeptics would argue has not been fully understood by the investor community over the years. Do you think years like this, where you have those extremes, albeit explained in the terms that you just have, uh, help the uh, the investment community better understand the fundamentals of shipping. Is it does it help or hinder your job uh, to explain shipping to investors? I think there's two ways to answer that question. It helps my job to explain it by letting people understand the low barriers to entry, um, short cycles, um, vast volatility that 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 drives this industry. Mm. I think it hinders than their decision to invest in this industry. Because the problem is when you have six to nine month period of remarkable earnings, which basically all but, let's say the 14 to 16 cycle and tankers, um, all but that have been more driven by anomalous events like sanctions or floating storage um, since the financial crisis. Mm. And I would, argue, I mean, I have to look at it from two positions. I am a equity analyst, number one, but I've been in shipping for 20 years. So I kind of view myself as a shipping person too. Um, the things that your listeners and you know my friends in the industry love about shipping, the personalities, the volatility, the asset play, that doesn't lend itself to a 
uh, a large investor who was trying to invest over a 12 to 60 month period, depending on the person. None, now, granted, there are a lot of hedge funds we deal with who have mark to markets every month, every quarter, sometimes every week and every day. And those are the guys who can be very nimble and buy these when, you know, it's, it's darkest and hope to be gone before, you know, the sun rises. Um, but for the real true institutional investor, I think what's happened with these spikes and then these massive depressions after it has really shed the light on the fact that what happened in 2003 to 2008, which we all hold very dear in our hearts and hope happens again, uh, hope that that repeats itself. And. I think that 2003 to 2008 was an absolute anomaly in the course of a multi-decade period. You had China going from basically importing nothing in 2000 and, or 2000 and 1999 to joining the WTO to becoming the largest importer of oil past you know the mighty United States and mighty Europe um, in an eight-year span. Mm-hmm. You had an industry that had been underinvested for 20 years because of the depths of the downturn in the 1980s and then in, in parts of the 1990s, the recessions, the Asian financial crisis. And because you never really had that demand juice, you had, um, you know, kind of this under the radar underinvestment in capacity so that when you had this great five year period and it wasn't just China, it was synchronized global growth. Yeah. Um, I, I remember JP Morgan in 2004. When our economists raised their global GDP forecast to, to like up five percent, which was crazy coming from a period of of um, you know not a not a deep recession, so that is the glory days that everybody it seems is still striving for. When are we going to get that next cycle? And until we get another China, or we get another multi-decade period of underinvestment, and maybe the fuel propulsion is the the catalyst that drives that. You know, the jury's still out on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we're going to get that again. What we're going to get is six, nine, 12, God willing, 18 months of really good, you know, 20% return type markets that will inevitably be hurt by the addition of capacity or a, a little downtick in demand. And that's the cycles. So to go back to the original question, I think figuring out now the investor base, what's been happening over the last 10 years and that what you're going to see is these six to nine month rips every once in a while instead of a five year upturn that hinders the investability of this sector to a broader investor base which is a, an interesting take and you know we've talked about it on this podcast many times before the sort of long-term trend towards that corporatization that consolidation that would make it more institutionally attractive i guess as a, mm-hmm. as a sector and you know there are those in the finance community who fundamentally believe that that is the case you know the combination of transparency requirements uh the sort of the gravitational pull of institutional investors and the requirements that they have mean that you know in order to access those sort of funds you need a critical mass you need uh, a corporatized uh you know way of doing business that frankly is not suited to the traditional slightly opaque private ship owner end of uh, a fairly fragmented market and that sort of narrative certainly when you're talking to uh the likes of Euronav makes sense but that's not the reality of the vast majority of the shipping industry, as we know. And I wonder, do, do you think, do you buy into that consolidation argument or do you think that's only ever going to be the top end? And actually, the you know, the, the fragmented middle will remain in that sort of cyclical, uh, uh, you know, approach to supply and demand. Yeah, completely the latter. And and that top end is is going to be, you know, a number that you can count on your fingers, not uh, not in the dozens. I mean, that's the problem is the starting point here, too. I mean, let's just take dry bulk, for example, right now. You know, the biggest names in dry bulk 
So we're looking at it from a market cap perspective um, with their U.S. listings. The biggest one is $764 million. That's Starbuck. Mm-hmm. Then $630 million is Golden Ocean. And the next biggest is Genco at 322 Now, we took all of those drywall companies. Let's take, take Genco, Eagle. We take Scorpio out it's not Drybulk anymore. Safe Balkers, Diana, Golden Ocean, and Starbulk. And you can do the math kind of quickly in my head. I mean, you get to $2 billion. Mm-hmm. $2 billion is not investable for most, most investors. And then look at the trading volume, too. I mean, here we are at 1047. Granted, it's December, but whatever. The market's been open for over an hour and 15 minutes. And outside of Starbulk, nothing's traded 100,000 shares yet. And you're also talking about single-digit stock prices for the most part. So you're not even talking about a half a million dollars of trading volume there. And you can consolidate the hack out of these publicly traded companies, which you probably won't because the sponsors still have significant ownership in a lot of these names or the founders have significant ownership in a lot of these names. And they're the ones who will get up on the podium and talk about consolidation. But when push comes to shove and giving up control, they're never going to do it. And it's <laughs> never going to happen. It's, it's too fragmented of an industry. The word consolidation and, you know, consolidation is it means more than one thing. It's not just a company buying a company. You can have pools or you can time charter in a significant amount or, um, you know, there's other there's other ways to consolidate control of the fleet into uh, one or two owners hands. Um, but as you know, it's just too fragmented from the start. And when you think about the starting point and what needs to be accomplished, whether it's from a fleet ownership perspective or especially from where I sit, a market cap perspective. It'll, it'll, I, I should never say never, but it's it's very high bar to get to the critical mass needed for really broad-based institutional support in the capital markets. Fair enough. Well, I I, I, I buy that argument to a point, I think, but uh, we will we will see. But let's let's look a little bit more immediately and get your view. You know, after the uh, the crazy, you've alluded to some of the details, but uh, get your crystal ball out and, and give us a view of where you think, uh, you know, tankers are heading uh, 2021 and beyond. So 2021, I, as I described to someone this morning, I think it's going to be a tale of two halves. Again, I mean, this is a phrase I've used before, but I mean, and and you also need to frame it in, in two regards. It's in an absolute rate and return basis. And then there's also a year over year or, um, you know, what's your starting point? Uh, as part of that question. As I noted earlier, I think the first half is going to be very difficult still. Uh, if you look at any agency's forecast for oil demand, uh, nobody has you getting back to 96 or 97 million barrels, keeping in mind that 100 was the starting point pre-pandemic by the middle of this year. Um, if you think about a return to normalcy in um, most modes of transportation, your you know best case scenario is probably the back half this year. If you look at OPEC's plan, or back up next year, if you look at OPEC's plan to start increasing production, or even the amount of uh, U.S. production, when we think about um, you know potential long-haul trade of, of U.S. exports, um, that's been tempered down meaningfully. And if it increases to any type of quote-unquote normalized level, you're looking at the back half. Um, and you know there's just nothing that can happen that quickly on the supply side to change that dynamic. Uh, I'd, I'd actually argue the counter is that you still have relatively elevated floating storage that needs to be unwound, which has the double negative approach of um, meeting this uh, hopeful increase in demand with localized uh, inventories and then also uh, returning capacity to the market. Not to mention the fact that we look at the first half of 21, the bar is set incredibly high versus that anomalous first half of 20. Now, as we get to the middle of the year, if we take a base case of economic recovery, uh, of a widespread uptake of the vaccine and a return to some sense of normalcy, 
inventory is hitting five-year averages again. So OPEC can start producing, um, you know, kind of closer to their pre-pandemic levels uh, and a super low bar given the terrible second half of 2020. That's when I see uh, an uplift, both on a sequential basis from a week first half, but also on a year-over-year basis from 21. Now, does our base case get rates to the point where, you know, owners are uh, making double-digit returns on capital? No. But once again, you have to start somewhere. So if we can then take the exit point of 21 into account as we look at 22, you have had very muted orders. Uh, you know, the I think um, I think only OPEC out of the major agencies has released a 22 forecast. Maybe the EIA has. Um, but a return to kind of 100 plus million um, oil demand. Then I think you can start to see more of a, a significant uptick. Now, of course, we have to hope that the economy doesn't go into a, a downturn in, in 22. Um, that, you know, hopefully there's a lot of pent up demand for, um, services and, and the associated transport that goes with that. Uh, and I mean transport, you know, meaning airlines and, and cars, et cetera. And, and then the, the demand for oil, um, with a still muted order book. And I think 22, um, has the, the potential to be a good year and a good year, not meaning 60,000 average VLCCs, but if we can touch four handle on average VLCCs for 2022. That's a good year. And that's something that will move these stocks on a more sustainable basis. The, the interesting thing is, and, and I didn't touch on this, was when we were sitting here exactly a year ago today, um, 2020 and 2021 looked like it was going to be probably the most sustainable good period of rates and returns for the tanker industry since yes. 2015 and 16. Everything was kind of aligned. The delivery schedule was kind of low. Um, you had IMO 2020. You had a good you know, base of economy. Um, and what the pandemic did, and I've, I've said this in, in written work before, is it basically took these two years of good earnings that we were set up for in 2021, and it jammed it into two months. You were really borrowing from the future to get this turbocharged floating storage lift in April and May. And now you have to deal with the, with the hangover from that, which is going to be the unwind. And I think maybe the biggest misperception is it's not just an unwind of floating storage. It's an unwind of onshore storage, which was the same thing that happened in 2016 you know, learning from our mistakes. Why was 15, 16 so good? It's because OPEC decided to try to put shale out of business and go to a market share war, flooded the market with oil, great for tankers, uh, but then you had to deal with the unwinding of that inventory. Um, so that's, I think, 22, we can, back half of 21, like light at the end of the tunnel, 22, some optimism, but of course, a lot can change between now and then. Well, exactly. But that's why we do these things at the end of the year so that people exactly. can drink enough over Christmas that they forget about the predictions we made last year. Unfortunately, mine's all in print besides this podcast. <laughs> I should have mentioned, dear listeners, of course, that we are in the company of a champion this week. Uh, as, as many of you will have noticed, uh, John uh, dethroned the five times champion and podcast regular Michael Weber as uh, shipping's top equity analyst in the annual poll carried out by institutional investor earlier this year. I should say congratulations, of course. I hope Mr. Weber uh, conceded his defeat gracefully and handed over the crown fully polished. You know, he actually did. Um, <laughs> Mike and I have known each other for a long time. I know that that probably wasn't uh, the best news he had this year. But, of course, he was starting his own firm. And uh, and quite frankly, uh, if I were him, I'd be looking for dollars uh, as opposed to votes. So um, I think he was aligned the right way. And and uh, fortunately for me, my longevity and uh, and I think a really well-timed call in, in late April, early May uh, kind of helped with that process. But yeah, it, it's nice to be recognized, um, especially by your your top clients um, and uh, and your peers acknowledging and conceding as well. 
And, um, you know, my only fear, uh, to be completely honest with you, is that uh, shipping has become irrelevant is the wrong word, but so less relevant than it has been in such a long time that I'm, I'm honestly concerned that it will be a standalone category going forward. Um, the institutional investor poll has a way of um, consolidating itself, uh, taking industries that have become small and, and are not getting the magnitude of votes of, of other mainstream industries and either um, getting rid of them or consolidating them into bigger categories. So, you know, hopefully it sticks around for a little longer and, and I can defend that. But um, uh, but that's just, you know, that's just the nature of the beast today. We hope, we hope. But uh, for now, uh, Jonathan Chappelle from Evercore, uh, thank you very much for joining the Lawyers List podcast and congratulations on your win. Absolutely, Richard. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and uh, have a great uh, Christmas, great holiday and, uh, you know, all the best for 2021. Hopefully it's a much better year. Super low bar. <laughs> indeed, indeed. 